I'd like to make a quick aside before we begin today's episode. Throughout the episode, I'm going to be using what is and are, to the best of my knowledge, the preferred nomenclatures and pronunciations for the various groups and cultural elements involved. But despite my research, I am a human and I might get it wrong, so I apologize in advance for any mistakes. Also, this one isn't for the faint of heart. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the show. eighteen seventy eight Alberta, Canada. The Hudson's Bay Company trade post sits lonely in the winter. As snow drifts blanket the landscape in a thick shroud, only the bravest of trappers and traders brave the winds to do their business, and so those who sit here are huddled around fires, warming themselves and enjoying hot drinks, thankful that they're out of the storm. But one of them spots a figure silhouetted against the dark sky. He stumbles through the trees on the horizon, dazed, almost as if in trance. The men in the trading post gather themselves and prepare to meet him. If he's been out in that cold, he'll need warm food and shelter, the least they can do. When the lone figure gets to their outpost, though, he's clearly in bad shape already. He's tired, hungry, shivering from the biting cold. Some of the men in the outpost recognize him, despite his ragged appearance. His name is Swift Runner. He's one of the trappers that works and lives in the area, a member of one of the Plains Cree tribes. He tells the men a story of horror, one all too familiar in the dreaded winters of the frozen north. He says that his eldest son has died. Snowed in, they ran out of food, and he left only once the child had died and went for broke to try and get food for the rest of them. The men in the outpost sympathize with Swift Runner, after all, such a tragedy could have befallen any one of their families, but by the grace did they go on, and such. But one of the trappers notices something that doesn't quite add up. Swift Runner looks a little too well-fed for a man who's just nearly starved to death, not at all like he just watched his family die of starvation. After some carefully worded inquiries, the trappers start to piece together the real truth of the matter. Eventually, Swift Runner breaks down and confesses. It wasn't just his son who died, it was the whole family. And whilst at first they died naturally, Swift Runner eventually became possessed with a strange hunger, an unaccountable peckishness that could only be sated with one thing. Swift Runner killed and ate his family. Now that in itself might not be too deplorable given it was the dead of winter and he had no food. If they'd have all died naturally, you could forgive it of him, the murder being the real crime. But there was something more to it. You see, the trappers realized that Swift Runner's house was a mere 25 miles from their outpost, more than close enough that even in this dire weather he could have gone for help far earlier if he'd really needed to. Which means that, whilst the consumption of the first child might have been out of necessity, he made a voluntary decision to kill and eat his family when he could have gone for aid. The white trappers are baffled. What could possess a man to do such a thing? But those of them amongst the First Nations know this madness all too well. You see, it wasn't just hunger that drove Swift Runner to commit this ultimate taboo. He wasn't just metaphorically possessed. He was literally possessed. The thing that drove Swift Runner to commit this unforgivable crime was a spirit, powerful and evil and ancient. It lives in the dark places, hiding in caves and forests and mountain passes, 
It stalks the trees and behind the shadows of long dark nights, waiting for its victims to get just desperate enough to latch on. And when it gets you, there's no getting rid of it. Swift Runner himself was taken to Fort Saskatchewan and tried for murder and executed for the crime. But this is just one tale of this particular spirit bringing ruin to those who encounter it and the way that it ran headlong into modernity. We now jump to 1907, northwestern Ontario. Two OG Cree medicine men have been brought in by the Canadian authorities on homicide charges. What Jack and Joseph Fiddler would eventually plead guilty to would be a slew of offences, many people who had been killed for no good reason. Except to the Fiddler brothers, they were killed for a very good reason, often at the request of the communities that those victims had belonged to. That malevolent spirit from before? Jack and Joseph were adept at the one thing that could stop it when it had a hold of a person, killing them and burning their heart on a fire in a special ritual. You see, when possessed, the afflicted's heart turns to ice, and only by melting it can you destroy the evil, lest it merely pass on to another when its erstwhile host is no more. But their role stretched far beyond seemingly wanton murder. The fiddlers were medicine men and chiefs among their people, highly respected within their communities for their expertise in spiritual matters, and both well regarded as slayers of demons. This didn't matter to the government, though. Murder is murder and crime demands punishment. Jack committed suicide in jail, whilst Joseph died shortly before he was due to be pardoned. Whilst mainstream Canadian society saw itself rid of two killers, their communities now felt a newfound vulnerability. The trappings of new Western civilization were all very well and good, but who would protect them when the next winter came and the hunger came gnawing again? The same evil that drove Swiftrunner to kill his family in cold blood and consume them was what the Fiddler brothers had dedicated their lives to fighting, a most peculiar and particular evil that stalked the icy plains of the United States and Canada. You see, for these cases, those who acted in a manner most transgressive to their societal norms, and those who took it upon themselves to defend their communities from that unspeakable evil, even if it meant breaking the law to do so, were motivated, for good or for ill, by something far more powerful than hunger or even spirituality. It was a normal, primal urge, what embodies the evil spirit we're discussing today. And we're not just talking mythology. Remember, Swiftrunner did what he did, having had the option to try and avoid it, and the fiddlers had allegedly sometimes acted with the consent of those they had killed. So why? Why challenge the written and unwritten rules of your society to fight the monster or become the monster? There's a very real psychological element to these myths, and that's what we're going to look at today. We're looking into the fact and the fiction of the Wendigo. Today on Demystified, we're looking at the story of the Wendigo, and the associated psychological phenomenon that has been supposedly reported to afflict people of the First Nations of Canada and the American Indians of the United States. I'm told that these are the preferred nomenclatures. This, by the way, is what I meant by us not just talking about mythology, although we are going to get into that. There's a psychological disorder referred to as Wendigo psychosis, wherein one believes one is possessed by the spirit of the Wendigo and has an unaccountable desire to perform acts of cannibalism. We'll be exploring whether or not this is in fact a real thing. It's important to the debate, 
Because remember, this is what the Fiddler brothers were charged over. They claimed that they were fighting Wendigos, and there's no doubt that a number of those that they killed also would have believed that to be the case. But the Canadian authorities, and many in the psychiatric community to this day, challenged that assertion, so we'll be looking at the evidence both ways. But let's start at square one. What is a Wendigo? At its simplest, the Wendigo is a monster from Algonquin cultural groups in North America. It's known by a bunch of names. Wendigo, Wittico, Wichigo, various other spins on that pronunciation. The Algonquin culture encompasses a huge variety of linguistic and cultural subcategories, from the Cree of the Great Lakes to the Cheyenne and Arapaho with the Plains, the Ojibwe, the Blackfoot, the Mohicans, the Croatan, the Roanoke, even some cultural transfer with the neighbouring Haudenosaunee, better known as the Iroquois. The Algonquin culture is spread out over a truly staggering area, from the Maritimes of Canada to the mountains of Colorado, all the way down the eastern seaboard of the US and right up to near the Arctic, it's arguably the biggest Native American cultural group there is. The Wendigo itself has taken many forms over the years, varying in realness from a concept to a literal claws and fangs monster. At its most basic core concept, the Wendigo is a spirit that possesses a person. Now, how the Wendigo spirit operates is a little recursive, rather chicken and egg. It's not clear whether or not a person first commits cannibalism and then becomes a Wendigo, or is possessed first and then commits cannibalism, but the element is clear. The Wendigo spirit afflicts those that it touches with the desire for, or those who have committed, cannibalism. But once the Wendigo spirit possesses a person, it's said that a frightening physical transformation takes place. The more traditional depictions are horrifying in their own right, the body becomes impossibly thin, gaunt, and frail, but rises to an unnatural height, eight feet tall if not for a hunched posture. The skin is pulled taut over the body like a mummy, and the mouth has no lips. It's said the hunger is so great that the Wendigo eats its own lips, the mouth being full of razor-sharp teeth. Its hands end in long, sharp claws, and the eyes become sunken, lifeless sockets that can suck the light out of any room. They're supernaturally endowed, too, faster than you'd expect and strong to boot with great and terrible power. But that's not the only depiction. Among some tribes, such as the Ojibwe and the Inu, the Wendigo grows in proportion with the meals it eats, so they can reach truly staggering sizes and levels of power. When a Wendigo reaches a great power, it can summon snowstorms to conceal its movement and spread its evil. Some depictions of these larger Wendigos include a head that resembles a deer's skull, repeat with grand antlers and glowing red eyes. This represents the most monstrous side of the Wendigo and was popularised by Algernon Blackwood's 1910 short story, The Wendigo, and other writers such as the ever-controversial H.P. Lovecraft. But regardless of the variety of appearance, the Wendigo represents a unified set of themes – gluttony, excess, famine, hunger, cold – and, in a more metaphorical sense, the North itself. The Wendigo is always hungry, its appetite insatiable. Despite growing with every meal, it always needs to feed, and thus can never be full regardless of how much it eats. To this end, Wendigos are always looking for their next victim. There are some methods of warding them off. Some tribes would perform a somewhat satirical ceremony to at least reinforce the idea and the cultural norm, wearing masks and dancing backwards around a drum to chanting. But the end idea is the same. The Wendigo represents an inescapable reality of living in the cold north. Sometimes, when the food runs out, a desire can take hold that can be hard to shake. Now, when studied in this sense, the myth of the Wendigo can be viewed through several lenses. 
There's the first lens, which is that it is a cultural reinforcement of the taboo of cannibalism. Now, each culture across history has its own view on that subject, but the Algonquin culture seems firmly set against, and as such, the myth of the Wendigo intends to drive fear into those who might succumb to a temptation when food is low. Then there's the lens of precaution, that the myth of the Wendigo is intended to warn against the dangers of excess. Basically, don't get too greedy, or you'll be inviting in a spirit of greed that can never be satisfied. Finally, there's the really metaphorical lens of the modern tellings, that the myth of the Wendigo persists because of its use of depicting colonialism, constant greed, consumption of all of nature's resources, and the destruction of one's fellow man, all fit the narrative of the classic Wendigo myth. It first entered Western pop culture with Algernon Blackwood's 1910 horror short story The Wendigo, and ever since it's been in and out of our cultural mediums. Books to TV, films to video games, Wendigos occupy a space that lots of other slightly more exotic monsters inhabit, that tantalising combination of obscure but familiar. Oh, and there's also a similar creature in Pacific Northwestern belief, the Wechuge, but whilst that's still evil and cannibalistic, it was less monstrous than its eastern cousin, a related myth, perhaps. Now, it's all well and good to talk purely about the myth, but at some point we can all agree that myths aren't really real. As the YouTube channel Extra Credit points out, they're not untrue, they serve as a foundation to a culture, and historically speaking they don't fit into the narrative, but for our purposes they're not real. You know, that creature with the deer's skull and the horns, you know, it's not really real. But that's not the case with the Wendigo myth, because now we come to the phenomenon known as Wendigo psychosis. Simply put, the idea is that somebody becomes convinced that they've been possessed by a Wendigo spirit, and as a result engages in acts of cannibalism. Whether there was an act of cannibalism triggering the psychosis, or whether it was brought on by other triggers, like with the myth itself, the afflicted is so convinced of their status as a Wendigo that they attain an uncontrollable desire to eat other people, and this can be a drive to kill other people for that. This then leads to the existence of people like the Fiddler Brothers, who specialised in hunting and killing Wendigos, because these people may in fact have believed themselves to be Wendigos. It simply serves to reinforce the cultural necessity of Wendigo hunters. If, say, Joseph Fiddler gets to the village and not only do all of the members of the tribe believe their friend is a Wendigo, but their friend himself believes himself to be one, how can killing that person be anything but a mercy and a vital service to stopping the spread of the curse? But it doesn't gel with the modern world. Unless we're wrong about a lot of stuff, there's no such thing as a Wendigo spirit, so if they're not possessed, why do these people become convinced they're a Wendigo? Take the case of Swift Runner. According to the story, he was close enough to the outpost that if he was really that desperate, he could, and should, and would have gone for help. The story isn't super clear on the specifics of the situation, but from what I passed, he turned Wendigo after eating his eldest son, who died of malnutrition in the winter. This then caused him to kill and eat the rest of his family. Murder, as far as anyone is concerned. But he did this because after eating his son, he became convinced that he'd become a Wendigo, and was merely acting on a newfound insatiable desire to consume human flesh. So fitting the description, the trigger of having to eat another person caused Swiftrunner to be convinced of his status as a Wendigo, whether it was remorse or the desire to help feed the curse that led to his confession, it's a matter for debate. Now, this is what really brings the validity of the idea of the Wendigo psychosis into question, as to where its nature really lies. The crew of the whale ship Essex, for instance, the crew whose story inspired Moby Dick, 
ate their fellow sailors out of sheer necessity. It's the law of the sea we mentioned in the Franklin Expedition episode. Push comes to shove, you draw straws, que sera sera. When the survivors returned to New England, A, they never ate another person ever again, much less murdering their own families to do so, and B, their peers didn't judge them for their actions. So it's clear that the Wendigo psychosis has some level of cultural basis, as those who don't believe in it don't get affected by it. However, Wendigo psychosis wasn't just invented to explain cases like Swift Runner and the Fiddler Brothers. It's referenced as early as 1661 in the Jesuit Relations, dispatches from the Jesuit missions in North America. Here's a truncated expert. Quote, They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy, but have a combination of all of these species of disease, which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, and even upon men like veritable werewolves and devour them voraciously without being able to appease or glut their appetite, ever seeking fresh prey and the more greedily the more they eat. This ailment attacked our deputies, and, as death is the sole remedy among those simple people for checking such acts of murder, they were slain in order to stay the course of their madness. End quote. Now, what this shows is that as far back as the 1600s, First Nations and American Indian people were suffering from Wendigo psychosis. It was reported long before the idea of the Wendigo had been popularised in Western culture. But this is the debate at hand. Starting in the 1980s, much was discussed about the historiography of the idea of Wendigo psychosis. Essentially, the debate is this. Are we, as people from outside of these cultural groups, taking these stories at face value and misinterpreting them, and has that been the case historically? Or is it in fact the case that the historical accounts from both Western recording and Algonquin oral tradition confirming the existence of Wendigo psychosis as a historical fact? For my part, I'm not sure. On the one hand, the fact that the reporting seems to go all the way back to 1600 is kind of convincing to me. After all, if the concept was a semi-modern invention, why would Jesuit missionaries be reporting its existence? Moreover, they're relating accounts given to them by First Nations people they were in contact with, rather than purely their own findings. On the other hand, it is in that case a strange phenomenon and one that's a little hard to pin down. Is it entirely cultural? Can someone from outside the cultural group be afflicted with Wendigo psychosis? Is knowledge of the concept enough, or is genuine belief required? And what, if anything, separates this idea from simple psychopathy? Cannibals do exist, why is this different on a psychological level? Moreover, does that make Wendigo psychosis psychosomatic? That is to say, is it something that you need to believe you have in order for it to affect you? Take being a psychopath, for example. You don't need to think that you're a psychopath to exhibit the symptoms. But to be affected by Wendigo psychosis, do you need to really believe that it's affecting you? And at the end of the day, does this change the realities of the cases we've looked at? Does it at all soften the fact that Swift Runner murdered and ate his family if we assume he did it because he believed himself to be turned into a Wendigo? Does it make the murders committed by the Fiddlers acceptable if we say that those who were killed also believed themselves to be monsters whose only respite would be death? The authorities didn't think so. Swift Runner was tried and executed for the murder of his family, and the Fiddlers' defence of being Wendigo hunters didn't do much to spare them from their prison sentences. The First Nations people near those stories in both cases, those of a traditional persuasion, had their own opinions. In the former, Swiftrunner's death was the best option at that point, to stop the spread of the curse. 
In the latter, the fiddlers hadn't done anything wrong. In fact, they'd saved more people than they'd killed through their actions. They were just doing their jobs. If Wendigo psychosis is psychosomatic, can it be cured? Or is the cultural belief too ingrained, such that much like the mythological creature, once it's got you, it's got you? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves if we're to get to the bottom of this mystery that transcends time and cultural boundaries. Because as much as it's the Algonquins people's heritage, if the Canadian or American government needs to look into a potential murder for whatever reason, it becomes their business too. And thus the cycle of the myth continues in its way. So, is there something to the myth of the Wendigo? Is there such a thing as Wendigo psychosis? And the jury's still out for me. I can see arguments both for it and against it. I think it bears an interesting similarity to the debate over what we call American Indians. Hear me out. It used to be assumed that Indian was fine, because that's what we'd always called them, despite it being very, very wrong. Then there was a backlash against it for its legacy, and the term became Native American. But I recently learned that polling shows a decent majority of American Indians, that being native peoples of the United States specifically, prefer the term Indian to Native American, because the latter is too vague for their liking. After all, that's like insisting that a Spaniard and a Russian are both Eurasian, in the same way that a Quechua person from Peru and an Inuit from Canada are both Native American, in some sense, so the reclaimed term of American Indian is actually the preferred term, so it's been explained to me. In the same way, it might be the case with Wendigo psychosis. It starts as something that the European explorers and missionaries assume is real because of a face value acceptance of mythology and the Algonquin reports. Then it's assumed to be bunkum because of a complete lack of evidence and the desire not to overly stereotype or make assumptions about the belief systems of First Nation and American Indian people. Then it comes back around, and actually when you look at the facts, there's examples of it in the histories of the Algonquin peoples themselves. Maybe there's something to it. But you can end up tying yourself in knots with it, because ultimately the concepts put forward by the historians run headlong into research by psychologists, and the debate as to whether Wendigo psychosis is a real psychological phenomenon is still out, from what I can tell. If you want to be safe, go with no, because that's the sensible science. You don't assume something is true until you can prove it on balance. It's likely that they are. But equally, I don't think I'd fault you much if you thought the other way, because the historical accounts do make you wonder. As for the myth of the Wendigo, its cultural role can't be understated. A Wendigo can be an idea of a thing, describing a person not as a literal monster, but as a metaphorical one, someone who has self-destructive tendencies, or someone with appetites too rapacious to be contained could be described as a Wendigo. And thus we see the utility of the myth, providing a dire warning against such behaviours, the stories of monsters resembling walking corpses ravenously eating their fellow man serve to frighten children into accepting what will later manifest as a social value, shunning excess and being wary of decadence. It can also describe that kind of possession that can take over a person that leads them to self-destruction, how an alcoholic could fall off the wagon and relapse, how someone with a gambling problem can blow all their money at a casino, how somebody with pining over an old flame could waste their life longing for something long gone. These sorts of behaviours can take over a person like a monster, and the drive to engage in them can be almost animalistic in nature. The gambler gambles not because he wants to, but because he needs to. 
Like a smoker smoking or a drinker drinking, the behavior becomes all-consuming, past the point of reasonable control, like an evil spirit driving you onwards. Belief in the Wendigo as an extant being has declined pretty massively as time has gone on. The American Indian and First Nation tribes, by a mixture of their own volition and in large part the forced settlement mandated by US and Canadian governments, became more settled and integrated with modern life and thus less prone to the scarcity that defined the pastoral and nomadic existences in the icy climes of North America. If you can walk into a supermarket and pick up your good old Canadian craft dinner, you aren't going to feel much drive to eat your family, the logic goes. So is the Wendigo a bunch of hokum? It's about as real as any other mythological creature from any other culture around the world, I suppose. I don't believe in it. Then again, I've never been there on a cold, windy night in Alberta. Maybe if I was, peering hard through a snowstorm, seeing some distant shape on the horizon, a towering skeletal figure with gnarled antlers and burning eyes, I'd also believe the stories. There's also the separate issue of Wendigo psychosis. Just because the Wendigo isn't real doesn't mean that the psychosis isn't real. It could well be the case that sufferers genuinely believe they're Wendigos, and that's why they do what they do, or allow others to do to them, as the case may be. If it's not real, is it just a culturally influenced manifestation of some other psychological phenomenon? And if it is real, what does it say about our understanding of the way that mythology can shape genuine belief? Placebos are a powerful thing, after all. I'll leave you with this. It's been proven you can make a person think they're drunk and slur their words by subbing them nothing but alcohol-free beer and simply telling them that it's real beer. Could you therefore make a person believe they were a Wendigo, if they really believed in such a thing? Or more importantly, could they convince themselves of it? Perhaps it's not them that's doing the convincing. Maybe it's the culture that's doing the convincing. Food for thought. This has been Demystified with Ashley Styles. This episode was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with hosting from Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.